on the sermon schedule on my computer, though I don't have it all planned out Sunday by Sunday. What I do know is where we'll be in terms of the Bible generally over the next few years. After Micah, I have plans to preach through intermittently through Acts and First and Second Samuel going back and forth. There have been seasons in my preaching where I might have two to three series planned and on the schedule, literally down to the passages I know I will be preaching Sunday by Sunday. I've had seasons like that where I've been that pre-planned and that prepared. And I remember talking to another pastor a few years ago, telling him the plans for my pulpit and for many weeks and months and even years to follow and how I had it all figured out. And He told me, oh, I find I don't like to tie myself down for that long. Oh, and he says, yeah, I'm always certain that some event or something will happen in the world that I feel God might want to speak into that event. And whenever it's happened for me, I've learned how to put my schedule aside. And um, I've also found, though, that oftentimes God's providence leads us to certain passages in very timely ways. I found that to be true with this passage in Micah chapter 3, if you want to be turning there. And I believe the reason that's most likely for that is because God's word is better than timely, it's timeless. And if you've been reading our study guide, we've made mention that Micah is generally speaking a collection of three prophecies of judgment. The first was in large part a prophecy of judgment against the northern kingdom. The Israel is divided at this time. So a prophecy against uh, Samaria, or also called Israel, and how their sins have affected the southern kingdom. And today, we're really in a second oracle or a second prophecy in Micah, and a judgment starts to be preached against particularly the southern kingdom. And what's covered in the prophecy is uh, southern kingdom's rulers and the southern kingdom's prophets. So I invite you to stand for the word of the Lord as we look at the first eight verses of Micah chapter 3. You're able to stand. <clears throat> Micah begins with, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. You tear off people's skin and strip their flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. Therefore, it will be night for you without visions. It will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed, and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths, because there will be no answer from God. As for me, however, I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion, 
and to Israel, his sin. Let's pray. Father, we just sing, humble thyself in the sight of the Lord, but I, I don't know if I fully understand the difficulty of that sometimes. Because I want to come to your word, and it may not be haughty or prideful against it, but in other ways, I feel like I know it, I've heard it all before, and I want to shrink back from vivid, graphic language as you give us here. But it is my prayer that you would truly humble us, that we would not be afraid to enter into some of the emotionally disturbing things here, not because we want it, but because that's what you've given us today, to eat. So would you use it for your glory and for the good of all people here? Pray that you would get me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. And I pray for each and every heart to respond accordingly. I ask and pray this and beg this for your name's sake. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I read an article last week, many of you may have read one like it, or heard the same news on TV. This article reads, if Virginia Governor Ralph Northam isn't a proponent of infanticide after birth, he should probably issue a serious clarification post haste, because that's exactly what his recent comments on a local radio program seem to suggest. Speaking on WTOP's Ask the Governor Wednesday, Northam defended his position supporting a bill proposed in the Virginia Assembly that would legalize elective abortions on demand through the ninth month of pregnancy all the way up until the moment of birth. When asked to respond to public outrage over the proposal, Northam seemed to suggest that not only can babies be terminated up until the moment they're born, but that full-term born-alive infants can be left to die without medical care if the mother wishes. If a mother is in labor, the infant would be delivered, Northam began. Speaking of babies born with anomalies that, according to abortion proponents, would have warranted abortion. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated, if that's what the mother and the family desired. And then a discussion would ensue between the physicians and the mother. Northam did not bother to clarify what such a discussion would involve or what anomalies justified for infanticide. God expects rulers and leaders to know what justice is. Rather, though, and in the time of Micah here, Micah writes, Then I said, Now listen, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? You hate good and love evil. We're told in Micah 1.1, in the time that Micah wrote, was under a few kings, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And of those three kings, Ahaz was inarguably a godless king. So we might think that this is an oracle from the time of Ahaz. However, we note a passage in Jeremiah 26 that quotes this very chapter of Micah, namely verse 12, and says that that prophecy was in the time of Hezekiah. 
And Hezekiah did bring about reforms, and Jeremiah says it was because Hezekiah listened to Micah's words. So God here, through Micah, is addressing the king and his royal officials throughout the kingdoms and cities and villages, as well as the religious leaders and officials and temple priests and prophets, all the social leaders, political and religious, because Israel being a theocracy. And Micah asks, aren't you supposed to know what is just? As the ESV says, is it not for you to know justice, as this should be a given? If you are in a place of leadership over people, socially, religiously, one of the requirements is to know what's just, what's right, what's wrong, what's fair, what's good, what's bad. It sounds weird coming from my mouth as if this is something that needs to be voiced. <laughs> but it sounded weird coming from God's mouth because, again, he asked, aren't you supposed to know this, right? Nobody running for political office, nobody assuming any form of leadership, for that matter, should have a day in class. <laughs> okay, today we're talking about requirements, and one of them is you need to know right from wrong if you want to lead. And then some people are thrown by that. What? Well, I... I guess that disqualifies me. I had in mind to do otherwise. <laughs> it should go without saying that leaders ought to act justly and do justice. Certainly the leaders of the nation, of the one true God on planet Earth, and yet God charges them, you hate good and love evil. A contemporary prophet of Micah, Isaiah, he writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The very leaders of God's people are acting in stark contrast, stark opposite of what they should be doing, and it's all too familiar for us, isn't it? As I brought up, we have a governor who, like many, always pushed the envelope, calling infanticide a viable option that should be left to parents. How is this any different from leaving the option to parents to take their kids to the altar to sacrifice them? The twisted, ungodly logic being human life is not so much of a sanctified quality that we should somehow inconvenience the parents. Leaders who hate good and love evil. The good-hating, evil-loving leaders of Micah's day were in the habit of everyday brutal oppression. And Micah vividly, graphically illustrates it as cannibalism. And a timely enough, if it sounds like what our leaders today propose to begin with, you tear off people's skin and strip the flesh from their bones. You eat the flesh of my people after you strip their skin from them and break their bones. You chop them up like flesh for the cooking pot, like meat in a cauldron. Micah is symbolically, poetically saying that the leaders eat their citizens for breakfast, right? They might as well be. The leaders... God's chosen people's leaders. Those who should be examples, leaders, and protectors are instead 
evil, power-hungry murderers. And Micah is using the language of what priests would be doing to animals sacrificing in the temple. The leaders of Judah are instead basically sacrificing the people of Judah for their own gain instead of giving them God's word and building them up. In verse 11 of this same chapter, Micah indicts them more specifically saying her leaders issue rulings for a bribe. Well, we never see that, do we? No politicians sold out to companies that make money on the way rulings go. We know exactly what that's about. So whether it be justice in the courts concerning uh, innocent people being condemned, or maybe the judge has paid off, or rulings about things that allow injustice to take place every day, Israel's rulers in Micah's day might as well be making money on the broken bodies of those whom they ultimately murder. By their complacent actions, people die. By their greedy rulings, people die. And so goes God's nation of Israel. Ripping off their citizens, abusing their citizens, using their citizens for their own gain, making decisions that lead people to their death. It may not be vividly and explicitly cannibalism, all it is, though, is cannibalism just through different means. Through the actions of these unjust leaders, their people die and the leaders are to blame. So if Micah's word, if God's word is unheeded, God gives some very striking warnings here in verse 4 that we might miss at first glance. It sounds bad enough, but it's worse than it looks at first glance. Then they will cry out to the Lord but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Let me give you a contemporary example. If I say, this is going to be an exercise, you're going to have to verbalize something, but I think you got it. If I say, God is good, you say, and then I say, all the time, you say, this is a truth that we celebrate as God's people. And we repeat, knowing it, that it is undoubtedly and arguably true. Israel communally has celebrated the fact that God is a God who listens. He is a God who hears the cry of his people. The Israelites are in horrific captivity under Egypt, and Moses records for us in Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out, and their cry for help ascended to God because of the difficult labor. So God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. And then one chapter later at the burning bush, God tells Moses, then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors, and I know about their sufferings. I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. On to verse 9 says, The Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God is a God who hears the cry of his people. Israel knows this. We just finished, thank God, the book of Judges in Dean's class. Did I have that in there? 
And that is a constant cycle of rebellion by God's people, oppression against God's people, and then God's people crying out, and God hearing them and coming to their rescue. Israel celebrated this fact, knew this fact, loved this fact, but no more, is what Micah says. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because of the crimes they have committed. Emphasis on because of the crimes they have committed. God is not to blame here. His people are. God is not being unfair here. His people are. God is not being merciless here. He's been very merciful, but here are the leaders and rulers over the people who should know justice and in essence eating their citizens for breakfast by misusing them, abusing them, oppressing them, treating them worse than the animals they are supposed to be brought to the altar for the forgiveness of sins. And what God is saying, you are silent to my calls to obey. You are silent to my calls to repentance and my calls to be just and upright and loving to reflect me. And you treat your citizens like fodder. So when judgment comes, when the armies come and mistreat you worse than you've mistreated your own citizens, God is saying, don't wonder why, don't even think, guess, or spend one second of, gee, is God not real? Because I am. I'm just not listening. I'm paying you the same respect you paid me. That's what God is saying. And it's completely just. It's completely fair. It's completely, God has had more than enough time, people have had more than enough time to repent. And God is perfectly righteous to say, there's coming a day where my wick is out. There is coming a day where my hands are outstretched to receive you no further. God is saying, have a little self-respect to know that you have had all the time you need to make an informed decision. And you have said no every time. And so when you're done eating your citizens for breakfast and you're going to have your just desserts, you get to eat all the consequences of your own actions. I will treat you as if you have treated me with silence and rejection. It's hard stuff. It's true stuff. And what happens is we have a tendency to respond to things like this, what God says. But what about compassion? What about compassion, God? I'm not saying we need to do this forever, but we need to try to put ourselves in God's shoes here. It's a bad place for us to be in, but if we can. Imagine having a child who is never seen without a knife because he stabs every person he sees. And he kills them. He takes people's money. He robs people. The only people he's nice to is for reasons of manipulation to use them and abuse them. A child who molests girls... Imagine this horrible, detestable child. Would it not be just to go to great lengths to make sure the child is properly dealt with? And I'm not saying death. I'm not an abortion advocate. Isn't the best alternative, if they never respond in righteousness, to at least do what the law and justice demands, what the courts require? To come to God and say, where is your compassion? What do you mean you'll ignore Israel and hide your face when they need you the most? What is, where is your compassion? It's as if that horrible child is on the proverbial playground and a group of bullies have come to teach that child a lesson. 
And that's where you're at. What would you do with that horrible child who has done the most horrific deeds and asks for mercy as he's being built, beat up by bullets? He's seeking mercy from the very people he has offended day after day after day after day. That's a place I don't ever want to be. That's a place that God is in all the time. So we need to thank God that he's the only one in the place of judge when it comes to those moments. And we need to stop judging God by calling him unmerciful when he knows more than we do and he sees more than we do. And we really need to realize that God is not to blame here. The people are. Because when his wick runs out, it's on the tail end of years and years and years and years and years of pleading for repentance. Pleading to be heard. Pleading for people to stop their wicked ways. But even the people who should be doing the pleading of God for justice are just as bad as the leaders and people they need to be pleading to. The prophets are just as bad as the leaders. That's what Micah says next. Verse 5, it says, This is what the Lord says concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who proclaim peace when they have food to sink their teeth into, but declare war against the one who puts nothing in their mouths. These are prophets in it for the prophets. P-R-O-L-F-I-T-S. Prophets in it for the prophets. As verse 11 of this chapter reiterates, these are priests who teach for payment and prophets who practice divination for money. Let us not overlook the horrible consequences that the prophets who are in it for themselves, they lead my people astray. The very people instructed and expected to care for the souls under them, because of their own greedy desires, pat the people's backs all the way to hell. And James says in the New Testament letter, Not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. Or the writer of Hebrews says, Not um, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Prophets and leaders need to give an account for the lives of those they serve. And in Micah's time, these prophets who are in it for the prophets are mercenary prophets, teachers for hire. Paul instructs Timothy in his second letter, proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, be serious about everything, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your mission. This is serious for me. <laughs> I've been speaking in the third person. Prophets need to watch out. They need to give an account for the souls they speak to. But I know I'm commanded by God to get up here and preach the truth. And I don't, I didn't really have time to sit down and even begin studying this message actually until Thursday. And I prayed and, and I wrote slowly four pages or so and kept coming up empty. I didn't feel inspired. 
I felt I had prayed and heard nothing back. I skimmed a few other passages thinking that maybe I needed to preach somewhere else. When I finally returned to this passage in Micah on Friday, I came to verses 6 and 7 here, and I feel a little convicted. If prophets who are in it for a prophet prophesy, here's what happens, says Micah, therefore it will be night for you. God, you're not speaking to me. Without visions, it will grow dark for you without divination. The sun will set on these prophets, and the daylight will turn black over them. Then the seers will be ashamed and the diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. I brought three passages up from the New Testament. The first two I brought up from James and Hebrews were sober considerations for any person serious about becoming leaders, teachers, or prophesiers in the church. And then I brought up 2 Timothy where Paul seems to be talking about false teachers People who maybe come into ministry on serious grounds only to have their consciences seared and now are just working for fame or the dollar. Or it could have been people who never had serious desire to teach God's word and only to teach for fame and the dollar. And as we look at the judgment here in Micah chapter 3 verses 6 through 7, it's interesting that God is saying that he will be silent to the prophets as well, just as he will be to the nation's leaders. We must consider that who Micah is talking about, the prophets who prophesy for money, also are people who apparently would be ashamed, as Micah says, if God did not speak to them. The point being, evil intentions aside, I wonder if these are prophets who apparently have some scruples or some desires to share the words from the Lord when it suits them, because if they were solely in it for the money, without any consideration of what God is saying, well, this wouldn't be much of a judgment for them. They wouldn't be ashamed because they've always preached with God being silent. Does that make sense? Or, maybe it could be that Micah is talking about them being exposed as false prophets to their shame when their judgment comes. I want you to hear what Jeremiah's indictment of false prophets are in the book of Lamentations. So chronological-wise, 200 years after Micah, the southern kingdom, Jerusalem, and its temple is destroyed. Thanks be to God in Micah's time that Micah's generation heard him and repented, but the generation when Babylon came did not. And look at what Jeremiah says. Look at where he hangs blame on in Lamentations 4, verses 11 through 14. Jeremiah says, The Lord has exhausted his wrath, poured out his burning anger. He has ignited a fire in Zion, and it has consumed her foundations. The kings of the earth and all the world's inhabitants did not believe that an enemy or an adversary could even enter Jerusalem's gates. Listen to this. Yet it happened because of the sins of her prophets and the guilt of her priests who shed the blood of the righteous within her. Blind, they stumbled in the streets, defiled by this blood, so that no one dared to touch their garments. Jeremiah, a prophet himself, lays the reasons for the wrath of God and the destruction of his holy city and his temple at the feet of the prophets. God is not to blame here, the prophets are. That is their shame. That is their disgrace. Their mouths are shut. And, and so it could be, Back in Micah 3, where the judgment on the prophets are, quote, it will be night for you without visions, it will grow dark 
The sun will set on these prophets. Daylight will turn black. The seers will be ashamed. The diviners disappointed. They will all cover their mouths because there will be no answer from God. Could be in the vein of lamentations here that, that their shame and their disgrace is when judgment is happening. And lo and behold, they've been exposed as the frauds they are. They've been shown to everyone that God has been silent to them. What this means, priesthood of believers, if you and I want society to turn around, you and I need to be consistent with the truth in order to be. Contrary to the false prophets, listen to how Micah defines himself. As for me, however... I am filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. First, foremost, utmost, ultimately, without a doubt, we must know that prophets are not only, but must be filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord. And I say that there are even people who might be speaking on behalf of the Lord And it may even have truth in it, but sometimes it's not filled with power. Some people who might even speak truth are not filled with power. They are filled with selfish desires to be known, seen, heard. Or the prophets, like Micah has been talking about, they're filled with greed. They're filled with selfish motivations. Paul knew a few people that he told the Philippians about in his first chapter that some preached Christ out of envy strife and rivalry, and then he says kind of dismissively, whatever, the gospel's getting preached. Prophets need to be filled by the power of the Spirit of the Lord, and I think this is my biggest desire, as I have weeks like last, where I don't want to formulate a message apart from the Lord's power. It's worthless for you, it's worthless for me, I don't want to get up and speak words that might be true, but if it wasn't led by the Spirit, it's not anybody's time. For Micah, He needs the power of the Spirit of the Lord to preach his word because the obvious thing is by the nature of the context of his prophecy, what God has to say is unpopular. People would rather pay prophets off to say nice things. As Micah said in his second chapter, if a man of wind comes and invents lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer, he would be just the preacher for this people. It takes the Spirit of the Lord to preach an unpopular word with pure motives. I'm reminded again of what Jeremiah says in his prophecies, in his book in the 20th chapter. Jeremiah says, You seized me, Lord, and prevailed. I am a laughingstock all the time. Everyone ridicules me, for whenever I speak, I cry out, I proclaim violence and destruction, because the word of the Lord has become for me constant disgrace and derision. If I say, I won't mention him or speak any longer in his name, his message becomes a fire burning in my heart, shut up in my bones. I become tired of holding it in, and I cannot prevail. A fire burning in my heart. Now, growing up, I kind of received by osmosis the understanding of what abortion is and why it's evil. I heard about Roe versus Wade, kind of like you hear about the Revolutionary War in history class, kind of like you hear about events in the past that, sure, you can read up about, but for obvious reasons, if you're not there, there's sometimes a big emotional detachment, unless if you really seek out to try to find it. And I not only always knew about Roe versus Wade, I not only always knew about abortion being murder, but I would 
like to say that I had believed it sincerely, that there was never any doubt in my mind whatsoever that abortion is anything but murder. I never thought anything different. But there's been something about the last two weeks with these states proposing abortion being available up to the moment the baby is born, suggestions such as mentioned at the beginning of this message, the moment after the baby is born, that I think really made me feel what Christians felt when Roe versus Wade was first passed. Innocent lives being taken, helpless lives being destroyed, flesh and blood being discarded. Micah sees his nation like that. And the very people who should be leading it politically and leading it spiritually are not ignoring it because they are complaining. It's a fire burning in his heart like Jeremiah after him. He has to speak. He can't be silent. He can, he can pronounce the judgment of God that God will be silent when the very people who have rejected and disobeyed him time after time approach God for his intervention. But when it comes to Micah, he is filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord, with justice and courage to proclaim to Jacob his rebellion and to Israel his sin. The Spirit compels Micah. Justice needs to happen. Courage to say what God wants him to say. Courage to say to the very leaders of God's holy nation that they are the ones in sin, they are the ones to blame. And so when judgment does come, God will be blameless. His people will be to blame. But here's what you need to hear. Here's what I need to hear. Here's what self-motivated prophets, not spirit-filled prophets, tend to do. They get righteous. They get self-righteous, snobbish, angry, and oh boy, here's a hill to die on, and I'm right, let's go blast some political opponents who promote murder. Who's that governor, Kevin? Let's demonize him. Micah, spirit-filled Micah, at the end of his book, has a lamentation. Because that's the correct thing to do when God weighs in on your heart and gives you the courage and the power to preach justice. You don't use the world's tools to demonize other people. You preach justice with boldness and then you lament when they don't repent. I know another prophet who came to jacked up, hypocritical, unrighteous, self-righteous Jerusalem who found that Jerusalem's religious leaders were just like the religious leaders in Micah's time. They were guilty of sin. Jesus told others to beware of them. Don't go near them. They're not doing their job. And quite literally, the leaders of Jesus' time who hated good and loved evil, they hated that Jesus preached true repentance. They hated that Jesus stripped the Jews of the pedigree of being Jewish and in turn demanded repentance. They hated that Jesus was preaching a kingdom that was for the world. And Jesus was forgiving sins and freeing sinners from the captivity of their own worst enemies themselves instead of promising a political revolution. The leaders in Jesus' day loved evil. They conspired to kill a man as if it was nothing. They wanted to keep their places of power. They wanted to stay rich. They wanted to keep sinning instead of repenting. And so to use the words of Micah, they came to Jesus and tore off his skin, and stripped the flesh from his bones. And Jesus cried out to the Lord, but God did not answer him. God hid his face from him at that time because of the times they have committed. That is our God. 
because from the upright who hear Micah's words and says, Micah, you are filled with the Spirit and you have convicted me of sin. There is grace for the one who comes and receives the word of God before judgment comes to pass. Hebrews says it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes judgment. You and I are still around. <laughs> That's the grace of God. We're not dead. We're not being judged. But instead, we can listen to the judge and accept his verdict, guilty, and then accept what he's done for us. He's taken on our sin. He became exactly what Judah deserved in Micah. He's come to the place where he's cried out to the Lord who did not answer him because Jesus, at that time, to say it like Peter says it in 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. The righteous for the unrighteous, don't you love As spirit-filled believers, that should be our heart for even people like Governor Ralph Norton, who proposes that infanticide is okay. God saved Ralph. God loves Ralph. God was dying on the cross saying to the people who killed him, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And God became flesh to die for people like Ralph Norton. God is fiercely angry with people who murder babies or do any other horrid act. And God is fiercely and jealously in love with his people and wants all people, baby-murdering proponents included, to come to him so that God and the flesh can be ripped and torn to pieces for their sake so they don't have to be. Friends, we serve a just God. Injustice should anger us as much as it does God, and that's okay. But we serve a just God unjust leaders and unjust prophets who will have justice coming to them should they not accept Jesus. It should be our heart to share God's warning to them and desire them to repent after they hear the good news of Jesus until they no longer have any chance to repent. That's God's heart. Amen? Father, oftentimes we look into your word and we're so disconnected because we don't know what culture was happening. We don't know historical context. Other times we open up the scriptures and find it hauntingly familiar. Realizing things have gotten bad. Your desire for your people is not to hide under a rock until you come back but you've ushered in the kingdom. You went out and met with lepers. You dined with sinners. You accepted the anointing of oil on your feet from a prostitute. So, Father, what would you have us do in these trying times? I know there doesn't seem to be a lot we can do on a remote level, but there are people still affected by the thing. Help us to remember that you are fiercely angry against injustice. It's not something that you permit haphazardly and dismissively. Help us to remember that your heart for those who would do injustice is not only justice, but repentance and mercy and grace and fellowship with your kingdom. So much so that you sent your son to take their penalty. 
their punishment, to suffer the wrath that's due to them because you want them saved. Help us to be praying for our leaders. Help us to not demonize political opponents. Help us to love them as much as we love them. Father, we love you and we thank you.